0: Secrets and Spies presents Espresso Martini with Chris Carr and
1: Matt Fulton. Welcome, everybody, to episode 7, or should it be 007, of Espresso Martini <laughs> with myself, Chris Carr, and Matt Fulton. Matt, how are you? I'm, I'm good. How are you, Chris? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, do you know what? It's actually coming up to the 70th anniversary of James Bond and the publication of Casino Royale, so I thought it was quite fun that we are episode 7 for that anniversary, so I thought I'd just throw that in there. Neat, yeah. Yeah. Out of interest, what was the first Bond book you ever read, or first Bond film you saw?
0: The first Bond book I ever read, to be honest, I haven't read many Mm -hmm. of the Ian Fleming books. The first Bond book I read, I found, this was several years ago, I found a copy of Casino Royale in a used bookstore up in the Poconos. And that was the first one I read. The first movie I saw, I mean, so there was a, there was a uh a video like rental store back when those things uh, existed in my town. It was called West Coast Video. Mm. I don't know if anyone listening if that sounds familiar to them. Um but uh and it was not on the West Coast. But anyway, uh I would go in and like rent like all of their Bond films. I think I must have worn out a few of the VHSs. Oh, yeah. I don't <laughs> I want to think what was the first one I saw. It was probably one of the Pierce Brosnan ones. Um I mean that was sort of the the time when I would have when I would have watched it for the first time, I know the first one I saw in theaters was uh, "The World Is Not Enough." Mm, mm. Um, that was kind
1: of the first one I was of age to see yeah. in theaters. Cool. Well, yeah, I could I could relate. So, Casino Royale was the first book I read. I bought it actually because of the. 2006 movie so I bought that um mm. bought it in 2005 actually I've been meaning to read the Fleming books for years and sort of never really got around to it some of them been floating around the house but when I heard the movie was being when Casino Royale was being adapted to a movie I went out and bought the uh, I think it was the Penguin edition of the book and sat in a cafe reading it and really enjoyed it and then saw nice. saw it with the film and compared it and I remember when I first read the book I thought because a lot of descriptions about the card games I thought how on earth are they going to make that into a movie but they, but they did a pretty good job I thought yeah Yes. My first Bond movie is a bit fuzzy, but I think, well, I've been thinking about this for a while, trying to work out exactly what it was, because it was actually my mum who got me into Bond, but um, I think it was Live and Let Die, because it was on television in like 1986, 87 on ITV. Um, and I remember one. That's a good one. It is a great film and I and, and I remember as a kid um after seeing um James Bond with his shaving foam taking out a snake, it was a flamethrower <laughs> shaving foam. Yeah. I decided to get my dad's shaving foam and try and recreate that scene and, and let's yeah. just say it well, it didn't quite uh, end as expected.
0: <laughs> that was that's the one where I think in the beginning we're going on on a crazy mm-hmm. tangent mm-hmm. here, but that was the one I think it was in the beginning, um in like the cold open, it was like at his house. Yeah. It showed his house in the one. I remember thinking that that was so cool, like seeing Bos just like yeah. domestic yeah. life, my like eight year old kind of mind being like, Oh, he has like a house that he just like lives in. That's yeah. That's kinda of strange to me. But
1: yeah, and with a rather elaborate coffee setup, from what I remember as well. Yes. And his dressing yeah. gown. Yeah. <laughs> that was that was good. And I think the first Bond film I saw in the cinema was GoldenEye, so I was just a couple of films mm-hmm. ahead of you on that. But um, yeah, uh, yeah, I remember that image of just Pierce Brosnan as James Bond, wise his stunt double jumping down off the dam, and I remember thinking that's such a yeah. cool opener. And it was actually the first film I saw after the pandemic when we were slowly allowed out again There's a cinema in central london called the prince charles that shows old movies and it shows a lot of bond movies Uh and i sort of timed it to go and see golden eyes my sort of return to cinema so (laughs) so it was a pretty cool way to start watching movies again so there we go nice (laughs) yeah so so it's good well let let us get going so today we have a jam-packed episode and we're going to look at a few stories that kind of caught our eye in the world of espionage geopolitics and intrigue which is our area so we're going to start with a look at Chinese President Xi Jinping's visit to Russia. Our article of focus is titled China Portrays Xi's Russia Trip as a Bid for Leadership of the Non-Western World by Lily Ku at the Washington Post. i was going to read a few key points that sort of jumped out from the article and I'll come back to you, Matt, for, for your thoughts. So um, for audiences in China... Xi's trip to Russia was a show of strength and a testament to Beijing's bid for global leadership. On the second day of his visit to Moscow, Chinese media was awash with coverage of the visit as evidence of China's mettle when it comes to standing up to Washington. Under Xi's leadership, Beijing has deployed an increasingly assertive foreign policy focused on countering what it sees as US efforts to contain China's rise as a major power. Beijing's friendship with Moscow is a key part of its strategy to establish an alternative world order that challenges US leadership and looks to China for inspiration. In an article published in Russian and Chinese during the state visit, Chi wrote that there is no country in the world that is superior to others, adding that there is no governance model that is universally applicable and there is no international order in which one country has a final say. During this important visit, there was an article that was headlined that had, there are four no's for the United States. And one of those no's is no limits on the partnership with Russia. The Gangming Daily wrote that Chi's visit would bring more understanding and support for China's Independent and peace-loving foreign policy. <laughs> so, so Matt, what are your thoughts on all of this?
0: It's interesting to me to see just all the pomp and mm. circumstance mm. that the Russians dragged out for this visit. I mean, three days in Moscow. I think they they dined in um, I've in the Terribles Chambers in the Kremlin or something. Uh, she bought he he. She brought like a uh, hundred staff members mm, with him mm. um, really kind of just planting the flag down to establish the scope of their relationship, you know. Um, and I I said this to you before that you know, when was the last time that you had an autocracy in Europe? allied this closely with an autocracy in asia Mm, mm, you know mm. what did we get from that yeah (laughs) if people listening catch my drift or what i'm referring to um it 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 wasn't good yeah i i i i think something to take out of this meeting though i think she and putin had really divergent goals you know i think she did it to act in kind of uh defiance of the international community and and to say that you know we can go where we want and we can meet with whoever we want you know this came shortly after the international criminal court Mm. uh, slapped putin with a uh arrest warrant for war crimes deservedly so um yeah right 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 yeah i think i think on the other hand putin wants to show that he's not isolated on the global stage you know he he desperately needs chinese support to to backfill um uh western sanctions he certainly wants them to provide uh lethal support for his war in ukraine um they already are providing support to to some extent i think they're providing lots of drones there's a lot of chinese produced chips computer chips that that mm-hmm. uh, that they've been cut out of of western markets for that the chinese are are uh, providing you know at this at this conference uh xi spoke with putin about this kind of 12 point peace plan for for the ukraine war that the chinese uh came up with did did, did you hear anything about that
1: no but i i've got a a certainly um a guest on the podcast not long ago matthew war from rain proposed that you know that this chinese peace plans um what's the word not malarkey but a load of sort of nonsense and in fact they want to prolong the war so it keeps the u.s and nato occupied
0: right right i mean it's 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 very kind of typical of the Chinese view of the world. They often in negotiations with the US, they often like to use this term called the win-win. Mm-hmm. They want to find like win win solutions for these issues, mm-hmm. which are very kind of an insidiously coded way of, of of how they approach things, you know? I mean, I think the first point in in their plan was um, They wanted to respect territorial integrity for 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 both countries, which I mean, would have been nice if they came out with this before uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. Yeah. But I I think their goal here, or at least why this is appealing to Putin, I mean, the Russians are going into the second gear of this war. Um, They're desperately afraid of a new uh, springtime offensive, which we'll probably get into a little bit later uh, in the show. Um, But, you know, they have not made anywhere near the kind of gains they wanted to. I mean, you know, they're nowhere close to capturing Kyiv or any of the major cities in the country, although they do hold a lot more territory uh, than they did at the beginning of the war still. Um, But I think by and large, you know, this strategy by by um, by the Russians and China is to sort of uh, just freeze the war Mm. for as long as you can you know kind of continue to to starve the ukrainians to sort of wear out the patience of of western allies um and to kind of you know force the ukrainians into a negotiating position that is not nearly as strong as as they would like to to be in
1: yeah yeah i think chinese support for russia and its war against ukraine does not bode well for ukraine um on a few levels i mean as you just said it puts it will probably force them into a weaker position there is also for me the concern because i don't think china are currently supplying like bullets and guns they're supplying drones definitely they've been supplying like um mre kits non-lethal yeah yeah yeah. non-lethal yeah and washington obviously warned them a while back not to change that but obviously this this meeting really is a bit of a up yours to Washington, uh, and I think China are going to uh-huh. do whatever they feel like doing. So my my concern is that we may end up following history from the Vietnam War, funnily enough, where China will start to supply weapons, and they may even in time supply personnel. I mean, that's a bit of a leap, but there is a possibility that could happen. They certainly did that during the Vietnam War, and uh, it could happen again. Who knows? But I think yeah. if they start supplying weapons to Russia then i think that's a really bad thing for ukraine um and i think that could really tip the balance of the war back in russia's favor i could be completely wrong because obviously you need decent people to use those weapons but um but i've always felt that russia can still outlast and outgun ukraine just on that level and if and if western allies start to become a bit more reluctant to supply weapons to match that then that's not good um Yeah, And I think with the we've said it before about the U.S. presidential elections uh, in 2024, you know, could determine U.S. support um, in the future as well. So it's yeah, it's it's kind of concerning, really.
0: Well, I I think this meeting also should should show everyone that it's not the world, quote unquote, supporting Ukraine. It's the West supporting Ukraine. Mm. And then there's everyone else you know, on the other side, sort of this geopolitical legion of doom, I guess you could call it. Um, And, uh, a- a- and I think we in the West, in the sort of media echo chambers that we kind of inadvertently create for ourselves, um, especially in certain circles of, of Twitter, it's, there's this false belief that's sort of been adopted that the Ukrainians are, kind of just destined to win this you yeah. know like they're cleaning up on the battlefield and they can't lose and it's just a matter of time till the russian army collapses i mean i remember a month after the war started people saying oh yeah the russian army is going to collapse mm-hmm. any minute mm-hmm. now
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know and that 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 hasn't happened yet i mean they've they've lasted this long no they have not met any one of their goals that they wanted to i mean they they wanted to take kiev in what two three days you know um, and they're spending tens of thousands of troops trying to take Bakhmut right now. This, you know, fairly kind of random Ukrainian village on the map.
1: Mm. Mm. No, indeed. Yeah. And it's another point to your what you were saying about the Twitter echo chamber. I mean, like Russia have lost an awful lot of tanks, but they've still got half left, um, you yeah. know, uh, whilst Ukraine is struggling to get tanks at the moment i mean they're getting them now but they're not going to get anywhere near the level that you know russia has they've still got something like uh something like five or ten thousand tanks left to use um and obviously it could build some more and stuff and obviously if china start supplying weaponry like that it, it could change the balance totally so i think it's yeah it's not good but th- this move also seems to be like uh, they're strengthening the ties of russia um, and they're getting ready to circumvent the sort of U.S. international order as we know it. And that kind of may be a precursor for their plans of Taiwan um, because if they no longer recognize the international community who are going to object to their invasion of Taiwan, then they can kind of do what they want.
0: Well, I, I think that's been the the a sort of looming threat in the background mm. of this entire Ukraine war mm. is that it's kind of however this goes down, if it's seen as a as a win, For the russians in any kind of way Mm. it makes a chinese invasion of taiwan in the next few years all the more likely if they get their asses beat in ukraine and it's a complete failure and the international community kind of holds together um in their opposition to it 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 makes an invasion of taiwan a lot less likely you know because it 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 shows the chinese that this sort of 19th century kind of mindset that you could just go and just snatch the territory of neighboring countries simply because you look at it like a, like a toddler and say, that's mine, (laughs) you know, it doesn't work. But I, I I think this, this trip specifically to, to Moscow and the Chinese stance over the last couple months has just shown that, you know, repeatedly when faced with the choice of bending to us pressures on something or, you know, taking a a harder line on things that we don't like, if that's getting closer to Russia or the Iranians, you know, they're, they're prepared to do it. They're prepared to go against us and do things that, that we would rather them not do. But Mm. I I mean, at the same point, I, I think it's important for, for US policymakers to keep in mind that, that if we're taking A vastly more adversarial stand this is not to excuse the chinese at all i'm I'm not on their side even remotely but if we're taking a more adversarial stance towards the chinese whether that's a a subcommittee on the house a a subcommittee in the house that's like dedicated to confronting china specifically that's their job or we're you know scrambling f-22s to to shoot balloons out of out of the sky if we're adopting a much more adversarial approach to the chinese we can't be shocked and appalled when the chinese do adversarial things back to us you know i mean maybe that's just me putting my kind of cynical realist hat on but um you know i i always say that if you're if if you're gonna throw a punch you need to be prepared to take a punch back oh yeah you know totally totally Um, uh, and I, I would, I'd rather we be talking to them in, 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 some regard. Um, I think that this kind of, if we're getting into this tit for tat cycle of escalation with the Chinese where, you know, mm. we come at them or they come back at us and, you know, okay. And a couple steps down the road, they're supplying lethal aid to Ukraine. It, it's very dangerous. I mean, the Chinese, at least in their. Current political system are not used to being in a long term geopolitical rivalry mm. with another major power. Mm. You know,
1: I don't think it benefits anybody to enter Cold War 2.0. Now, some could argue we're already in it. I would say we're probably in the early stages of it. I don't think we're completely in it yet. But if there yeah. is a divide between East and West again, like China, Russia versus America et al., um, then I just don't think that benefits anybody in the long run, especially no, it doesn't. Especially with the battle for climate change, um, because yeah. uh, just I, a couple of years ago, I did a really interesting episode about the national security threat that it poses, and it does. It poses a huge threat to all of us, um, and you know, it, it's, unfortunately, it's got very politicized, isn't it? Climate change, but um, but yes. basically, the only way to resolve it is for every person you know every country to play its part in trying to fight it whether that's yeah. through carbon emissions or other things too but it's also you know about cooperation and the my theory is if we do end up in a cold war 2.0 and the world is divided, um, and it just becomes a war on resources, it will lead to more conflict, more open conflict. And that is my biggest fear out of this situation. That's why I don't think a Cold War 2.0 is one that as a world we can really afford to have, unless unless you're into post-apocalyptic kind of mad maxi kind of worlds, then <laughs> then fine, let's go for it. Yeah, you know, let's get the Thunderdome yeah. going, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah. I I think it does sort of in the last couple of years with China, it has sort of felt like the late forties stages of the cold war. If that makes sense, you know, yeah. like the, there's a time when, um, uh, we had George Kennan's long telegram, you know, come out. This sort of, that sort of, uh, was the first time that, that someone came out and said someone in the U S diplomatic community came out and said that, you know, the soviets pose this this huge existential threat to us and we're not sort of taking it seriously you know i mean Mm, i think mm. the soviets were in a cold war with us several years before we were in a cold war with them Mm. um it took us a long time to catch up uh and i sort of feel that's where we are now on a whole host of issues whether it's um uh The economic projects, development projects that China's doing all over the world in in Africa and in the Middle East, you know, they just brokered this kind of a rapprochement, I guess you want to call it, between Saudi Arabia and the Iranians. Mm. There's a lot that they're doing around the world right now,
1: Mm. Um, and Mm. I feel like we're kind of behind the ball on it well the thing is they've become more imperial in nature whilst the west is trying to be less imperial is the way i see it i think we are and i I don't think being imperial is a good thing but but um because we you know because the disastrous war and terror and all those kind of things i mean we are I think entering to a phase where it's becoming a battle for national resources, which I don't think is a good thing. Um, and I'd rather it not be a battle, I'd rather it be people politely deal with each other. And
0: You raise a good point there. So, I mean, in this Washington Post article that we were talking just here, that, that really mm. kind of focuses on how Chinese state media covered uh, Xi's trip mm. to Moscow. But, but there's a bit in this article here that, that, that quotes something that Chinese state media said. Um, that there is no country in the world that is superior to others. That's yeah. the Chinese view of this, which is kind of kind of laughable when you consider how China has viewed itself through history, going back you know two thousand mm. years. They mm. always kind of, I mean, it's it's the Middle Kingdom. It's above them is heaven, and below them is everyone else. You know, if that's not an imperialist view of the world and Mm. their place in it i don't Mm. know what is
1: well and look at the way china's behaved i mean look at tibet look at what they want to do with taiwan look at the way they're treating muslims in their own country who have a you know a different religion um you know to say that they're this sort of peace loving i don't know hippie-ish kind of country is what they're trying to paint themselves as Uh, oh yeah it's it's yeah yeah yeah, it's ridiculous Uh, you know the fact that their domestic policy is so draconian and clamps down on free speech and all those sort of things um it was a very interesting uh podcast listening to a while back with sir richard Dearlove love for life i can't remember the name of it right now but he's got a podcast of his own he's former head of mi6 um mm-hmm. and he was talking about china and uh, to an expert and they would one of the fears is obviously as china becomes more of a um should we say a influential force around the world that it may in time start to expect its sort of partner countries to start adopting some of the methods that they're using to control their population is a fear there's no yeah no evidence to say that's exactly what they're going to do i haven't seen it play out in africa and the middle east just yet but they certainly do pally up with countries that already seem to do that but i don't know in 30 years time when we are in this sort of more desperate stage of of climate change and economic turmoil because of it will countries turn around and start if china says hey well you know we'll rebuild your roads and do this and do that but you've got to you know adopt our way of thinking in the world a bit like what america's done with its soft power you know trying to promote freedom and democracy china might be trying to promote the opposite Um, and as i think that's a concern and a real concern i spoke to a few people who express that and and they're people i respect and and i think there is a real possibility that could happen potentially
0: well, that's a, that's another good point here that is sort of kind of laughably raised in this article that she wrote about the trip where he, he yeah, he said that there's no yeah. country in the world that is superior to others. But he also says right after this that there is no governance model that is universally applicable and there is no international order in which one country has the final say, yeah. which you would look at that and just think, well. Okay, fine. I mean, I think that 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 countries have the right to self determination, you know. And if 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 their people decide, you know, not under duress, not at gunpoint, that you know, this is the sort of destiny that they want to have if they want to be closer to the West or not. Yeah, people have the right to self determination. That's their to choose. But if your if your governance model, if your international order, which you envision and champion, is one that you um. Lock up Muslims in concentration camps, mm. or you you know weld people inside their apartments, you know in the middle of of a pandemic. Yeah, uh, uh, if you you know um, drastically limit the if, if you drastically limit the kind of the kind of speech that is acceptable for your for your people to use. I mean, that's an international order that I think we we. Fought and won world war ii to mm. establish that that you know that we as a as a species kind of don't tolerate you know yeah. i mean i do think yeah people have the right to self-determination not every country in the world is kind of destined or meant to be a a a liberal democracy in in the style of Western countries, you know, mm-hmm. but I still think there is some kind of just basic understanding of, of human rights and, 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 and personal freedoms that I would think in the post-war world that we've sort of established and gotten past, you know, yeah. but I don't know, we're 70, almost 80 years removed from, from World War II and maybe that kind of idea Slips after a while. I think looking at where we are as a society in the u s. right now and our system of government and sort of what it's gotten us after, you know, two hundred plus years, I mean, we are, I think, in the u s. right now, incredibly dysfunctional. We are mm. dysfunctional to the point of being nigh ungovernable. We hate each other. We can barely coexist with each other yeah. in the u s right now. yeah, and I don't know if we'll be okay. But the difference is, I can still say that about my country, and yeah. the Chinese can't.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was think I was thinking about this very point this morning because if we are entering in this sort of phase of a more adversarial relationship with China, um, you know, as you were saying, we're so hey, we we're not united at this time. Um, whether mm-hmm. that's by foreign influence or not i i would say it's probably a little bit of that but i would say that the majority of the issues are issues that have pre-existed and and these are issues that unfortunately when you put them online in the black and white cold text uh etc that they start to become intolerable and we haven't sort of found a way to deal so i'm getting really off on attention but we haven't really found a way to sort of deal with everybody has a different value systems and different um You know different opinions on things, and we haven't found a kind of constructive way to get past that. Now, there obviously there are some very nasty things that have come out in the last twenty years, like sort of closet racism and and probably more overt racism racism than we realise in some parts of society as well. And and obviously, I can't remember who once said, but in a way, we've got to clean up our own act a bit, and then um, if we're going to be able to be in a, a situation where. Um, we can i don't know know—we're getting a bit lovey-dovey this but where we can heal and move forward you know um <laughs> because as a society we're not in a good place right now because we're not all on the no. same page and the thing is this is the scary thing we talked about this with the russia stuff a while back you know the far right um at the moment seem to be unifying a lot more people in sort of law enforcement and military, these are the very people we rely on to defend us and our values, and they, for some reason or another, seem to be giving a more compelling case uh, and drawing those people in, and that's dangerous, because if all all the people in the military who are supposed to be protecting us are actually all believing in the far right and Putin's vision of the world, that doesn't bode well either. Um, and obviously, it's a bit of a generalisation because not everybody in the military or the police are far right white supremacists. Far from it. Right. But, but there right. are, but there is a growing thing that we're seeing, especially like in Germany, with members of the security services who are suddenly loyal to Russia, and it turns out they have far right leanings. All like that British security guard in the yeah. Berlin embassy who was arrested last year um and i've seen you know we've seen other stories too of like members of special forces and things like that in germany and i think in the u.s who have um some leanings to far right and heck you're seeing it and you know you see it obviously in russia and that's 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 concerning and that's a big problem we're gonna have to deal with as well that kind of feeds into all this and that's sorry, it's a bit of a mishmash of things there so i hope people keep track of what i'm saying um but um, but I suppose my ultimate point is that yeah, we've got to find a way to kind of um, bring those people back because if we need those people to defend us and our values, they need to be people who believe in those values too. And I'm kind of like, and I think because of that 2015 period, I feel like it's where in America and to some extent Britain really has lost the plot a bit because of Brexit and Trumpism to the point where now. Yeah families are divided people are not speaking to each other it's and then and then like with trump being arrested just um earlier this week and it's there was a flag saying death or trump um you know that's really worrying and that's 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 not a small that is a sort of a people used to be able to laugh it off but i think we're past the point where we can laugh off wacky conspiracy theorists and people with um kind of pro-trump views um you know and it's it's it it, to me it just it shows a vulnerability that's that's probably the point i'm getting at. after all that word salad there right well
0: i i think I think if if I would draw, uh, if I were to draw, or try to draw a, a connection between the sort of um, temperament and worldview of communist China, um, I'll just say it, fascist Russia, or the far right in the West. I would say that you know, the Chinese argument against the post-war Western liberal system of government is that they would say that. It's chaos, mm. you know, mm. that it's it's the chaos of the commons and there is no sort of central voice governing and and bringing a common vision together to sort of drive this society forward. And and, you know, the Chinese would say that their system of government. Yeah, you don't have these personal freedoms, but in exchange, you have a relative degree of affluence and safety. I mean, the Chinese have have drawn tens of millions of people out of poverty in the last few decades, you know, so they would say that that's the benefit that our system of government has, that the West does not, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and I think what you're seeing a lot on with the far right in the U.S. especially, and I think in the West at large is they're sort of coalescing around this idea now that, okay, they've, they've tried to sort of push their policies forward at the ballot box they've tried to buy into democracy and it hasn't so much worked for them because they see themselves sort of losing the share of the popular vote i guess you could say over the last couple decades and in response to that they're sort of now jettisoning their embrace of democracy and going like okay well we have this view of how society should be in the us or in you know some western european country and that's straight white christian very kind of specific like it's if 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 you know live your life the way we tell you to live and we will allow you to exist is kind of their their uh their position now and they're Mm -hmm. trying to kind of enforce enforce that 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 system whether it's Banning books in schools that that say things that uh, they don't like, or if it's um, uh, you know, gerrymandering districts so that these sort of entrenched minority rule. It's you know threatening to next time they come back in power purge the government of all sort of career appointed bureaucrats and yeah, installing them yeah. with with people who who align with them politically. You know, it's that same kind of an enforced shaping of society by any means necessary you Mm, know
1: mm. and defunding the fbi and all that yeah yeah
0: defunding the fbi and doj because you know we should be able to commit any crime that we want without any repercussions um (laughs) yeah i mean i think that's that's what these these movements right now have in common and it it just comes down to autocracy
1: Mm, mm. yeah this, that's it. We're, and we're in that battle now between democracy uh-huh. and autocracy, whether it be domestically or, or internationally. I think that's. Yeah. The, the... And
0: I mean, to, to, to sort of, I guess, put a cap on this, you know, conversation we've been on here. It, it, that's I think you're seeing the contours of the geopolitical world for the foreseeable future. You know that that. OK, since the fall of since the end of the Cold War you've maybe had this unipolar world order where the United States is kind of the lone hyperpower and it's, it's been unchallenged for the last sort of 30 years and, and the Western worldview of small D democracy. Um, maybe that is fading a bit, you know, I mean, that's not the last 30 years, the system that we've had in the last 30 years is kind of not the norm. It's a bit of an aberration if you look throughout history. Yeah. You know, so so yeah, we are kind of reverting back into um into a world where you'll have two kind of very powerful ideologies in in competition with each other. And you know, like I said, yeah, when was the last to to maybe kind of tie this off in the way that, that we started this, when was the last time that you had a a powerful Autocracy in Europe allied with a powerful autocracy in Asia.
1: Yeah. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Yes, indeed. Well, thank you for that. So. Let's segue into um, another article. It's titled China Waging a Decades-Long Spy War by Calder Walton for Foreign Policy.
0: Listeners should definitely go read this article. It's it's really good, really kind of level-headed, balanced look at the threat that Chinese intelligence poses to the West.
1: Oh, definitely. And in the show notes, this article is available. So I was going to read a few key points that have sort of jumped out. Um, and Calder's got a new book coming out soon called Spies, and he will be a guest on the podcast talking about that. We're just sorting it out at the moment. Sounds quite interesting. Yeah, it's going to be epic. I think it's, it looks quite long, and he's been traveling all over the place. Nice. To so this article, so China's Ministry of State Security, the MSS, had a long-term aim, which was to contain the United States and then supplant it in Southeast Asia. After 9-11 attacks, as the United States was focused on terrorism in the Middle East, the MSS saw its chance to act. As a result, gains have been made by the MSS and they have went largely undetected or appreciated by US intelligence. Chinese intelligence was soon winning its war on U.S. spies. In 2010, the MSS dismantled a major CIA network that was being run from its station in Beijing. It reportedly led to the killing or imprisonment of more than a dozen CIA sources in China. Details of how the Chinese compromised the U.S. network remain murky. It seems, however, that the MSS hacked into the CIA's supposedly secure communication channels, and there are also whispers that there may have been a human agent, a mole, to use John Le phrase in the CIA. That person may have been Jerry Lee, who's a former CIA case officer who was working on Chinese affairs. After leaving the CIA, Lee sold US secrets to Chinese intelligence and he was later caught in a US counterintelligence success and in 2019 he was sentenced to 19 years in prison. There is little information in the public domain about what secrets Lee delivered to his Chinese handlers. Unlike those in Western democracies, China's intelligence services are not held to account by independent political bodies or the public, nor are they subject to the rule of law. China, by contrast, thanks to successive national security legislation passed under President Xi Jinping, Chinese businesses are now required to work with its intelligence services whenever requested to do so. China's unprecedented economic boom this century has been fueled by an equally unprecedented theft of Western science and technology. Back in 2012, the director of the US National Security Agency warned that cyber espionage constituted the greatest transfer of wealth in history a recent report by strider technologies an open source strategic intelligence startup has revealed how chinese scientists were able to obtain valuable research and development from los alamos home to the u.s government's cutting edge laboratories the report which demonstrates the power of open source intelligence in today's digital world reveals that chinese scientists at los alamos brought r&d back from there to china which the Chinese government then used in defense technologies such as hypersonics. In some instances, the Chinese scientists at Los Alamos had been funded by U.S. research grants. (laughs) So um, the United States was thus effectively funding its own competitive disadvantage with China in these sectors. And I'll just cap off with, according to the FBI, in 2021, it was opening a China-related investigation every 12 hours. Even Britain's traditionally secret services, MI5 and MI6, GCHQ, have come out of the shadows and publicly warned about the threat posed by Chinese espionage. And the article ends that we need a conversation about Chinese espionage, and it adds that now is a moment for nuance and not grandstanding. So Matt, do you have any thoughts that are nuanced and not grandstanding?
0: <laughs> I want to get that sentence like tattooed on my forehead. Mm, now is a time mm. for nuance and not grandstanding.
1: It's a good one, <laughs> it isn't it? Gets, and I can't ask colder sentence. So.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, I think this is a great article um and like I said, I would encourage everyone listening to to run not walk to go read this. Um I I think it does an excellent Uh, job of sort of laying out the the threat that chinese intelligence has Mm. uh posed in the last you know 20 years i mean this 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 article talks about how in in 2005 um the ministry of state security kind of declared war on u.s intelligence um and there's a really great uh, uh chinese proverb um that he uh describes it i i my Mandarin is non-existent, so I won't attempt to pronounce it, but it roughly translates to watch the fires burn from the safety of the opposite riverbank," which allows you to avoid entering the battle until your enemy is exhausted. I mean, it's been, I haven't read uh, my Sun Tzu since high school, which should tell you how weird I was in high school. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, this this goes directly in line with that kind of teaching, you know, and we, in in the last segment, we talked a bit about uh, the war on terror and how, you know, we were so focused on, I think, rightly to an extent combating uh, Al Qaeda and the threat posed by um, jihadism mm. that, you know, we we kind of we we miss the ball on yeah. on on the Chinese that we're, you know, we are bogged down in Iraq, you know, in Afghanistan spending, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars um, with with very little to show for it. Meanwhile, the Chinese have been, you know, running rinks around us, whether it's uh, industrial espionage or, um, you know, uh, weeding its way into various kind of academic circles and and um, building influence that way. Uh, um, I think there's elsewhere in this article, he sort of says that we need to kind of have a a uh, honest conversation about the influence of or or the role or the place I guess that uh, Chinese nationals have in U.S. universities, and he doesn't quite he doesn't say that like we should we should ban them we we should ban Chinese students from studying in 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 U.S. universities, um, but there is kind of I mean I'll be honest there is a point there that you know. Okay, Chinese nationals are are coming to the U.S. studying in, you know, the best universities in the world, which is a draw to the U.S. that we have the best universities in the world, especially when it comes to fields in science and technology. You know, I mean, we're kind of unmatched there that that we would educate them and then they're going to get back on a flight. And, and go back and use that education against mm.
1: us, you know? Mm. And there's been countless examples of that. Yeah, yeah I mean, you could, yeah.
0: I think if if you're a foreign national and you come to the U.S. to study at, you know, Stanford or MIT or Caltech or something, and you have this kind of, we, we imbue in you this advanced knowledge and capability, um, we should staple a green card to your degree. Yeah, yeah, there's something in that. Yeah. Hopefully they hopefully they they stay here and 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 work for us, you know. And that 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 doesn't mean that they go work for the NSA, you know. And not saying that, but uh yeah, go work for Apple or or Google or SpaceX, you
1: know. Yeah. Um what well, is is it? I think there are a lot of people with good intentions over the last of 20 30 years to you know who who've in a sense sort of um i suppose in that hopeful 90s period which you know increasingly looking back on with rose tinted Mm -hmm. glasses now but in the 90s there was this sort of feeling that we're past division we're past nationalism we're past this that and the other um and sadly maybe some of us were past that and many of us are not um and obviously as Calder's article points out, you know, China's Chinese businesses and then students and so on are being co- co-opted or, ha- or kind of made to work with Chinese intelligence for less than pure aims. And we have to be realistic about that. We can't be naive about that. And it's just trying to find that kind of balanced way, yeah. like you were just suggesting with... What's the incentive if we have people from China come and, you know, go to our universities and stuff? What is the incentive for them to stay here and not take that knowledge, um, you know, back and, and, you know, use it just for China's advantage? Is It's a difficult one, hence the need for nuance. Um, I don't know what the answer to that is. I wish I did. Um, Maybe one day we'll come up with it on this podcast, usually after a few drinks of martinis. But (laughs) we might have the answer. But I think also, like... um, People, again people can't be naive anymore people need to understand that sadly there is a threat um and they need to consider that in business um you know like there's been examples of sort of like uh, business people abroad who've been compromised by honey traps or they get involved in a very lucrative deal that suddenly pans out to being a front for chinese intelligence or even members of parliament have. Um, being caught up by donors, both Russian and Chinese. Certainly, in the UK, we had a scandal I think about a year ago involving I think it was a Labour MP who had been paid off by um, a person of influence who had connections to the Chinese government. Um, and uh, you know, I think some people just don't consider this as even a possibility. Um, certainly, I know yeah. you know a lot of people in my social circle definitely think still in a very 90s framework. They still think the world is this sort of um happy loving, very progressive place that um where nationalism and things like that don't exist anymore and we're the only aggressor in the world now. And I just think those days have passed. Yeah. Um I don't think that attitude really works anymore. Um I mean there's certain aspects of it we could aspire to. I think the world would should be a more inclusive and nice place and nationalism not such a big deal, but you know, I may want that, but that's not the world we're currently in, sadly. Um, so, but there we go. But at one one point, I was a couple of points going to bring up. I mean, obviously, the Biden administration has taken this threat quite seriously, and they've set up the China Mission Center, which William William Burns, uh-huh. and the CIA, created last year. Uh, we've also had recently this Chinese spy balloon episode. It's been a very provocative and symbolic move by China, and reportedly, China's balloon was equipped with state-of-the-art sensors capable of eavesdropping on electronic signals from near space that satellites could not. So that was quite interesting.
0: Can I make a point real quick there with that? Yeah,
1: please, 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 go for it. So yeah, so this new
0: information came out about the Chinese spy balloon that that it was collecting signals intelligence from military facilities that could not be collected from the outside. To the higher altitude that a satellite would be at, and if you recall, when you know back in in February when we talked about this, I brought up the point that it flew mm. right over the Dakotas, where uh, U.S. Strategic Command has all its its yeah. missile fields, and I kind of hypothesized with no evidence whatsoever that uh, it, it, they could potentially be interested in the mm. communications between between these silos mm. and its kind of control stations. Um, again, this article doesn't say that, that that's what they were looking at, but it, it what it does say that the spy balloon was collecting intelligence on definitely falls within that yeah, kind
1: of hang on. scope. Can you hear that? Yes. <laughs> Matt was right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I don't know that I was right. I don't. Yeah. I don't. I don't know that I was right. Um, but 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 I've I wasn't proven wrong. I'll say
1: that. No. <laughs> so there we are. We got something right on this podcast. Hey. <laughs> Finally. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> sorry, episodes not, I will to interrupt you. You, yeah. you, you, you. No, 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 no other points. not yeah. at all. No, 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 not at all, not at all. So, um, yeah, so the Chinese spy balloon thing is quite provocative. So, I mean, my last point, kind of similar to the point I've just made, is if we are entering this new Cold War type situation, with it being the Western order versus the Chinese-Russia order, um, we Preferably. can no longer afford to be naive about these things. You know, we're sadly not in this hopeful 1990s mm-hmm. period. As much as I'd prefer us to be, we're definitely not. So we need to find, you know, as Calder said, a sort of nuanced, non-grandstanding way of dealing with this. We don't want to end up with what the Trump administration did with its China flu nonsense, you know, because that led to a rise in hate crimes against Asian people. And this is this is the scare. This is the worrying thing. We don't want to repeat ugly history. I know with internment camps with World War Two and Japanese people, um, you know, and Asian Americans. Yeah. There's gotta we've gotta make sure it never happens and and bloody hell, individual citizens need to fucking grow up a little bit and stop attacking random people who look like may look like somebody you perceive as your enemy. It's really i uh, you know i I don't know how we deal with that that that's the scary thing about the situation and it's a bit like what happened in the war on terrorism with Islam. The problem is, it feeds into yeah. the hands of Muslim extremists every time a racist goes and beats up a random Muslim, and it's going to be the same thing every time a I don't know a white American beats up an Asian American or a white British person beats up an Asian British person. It just plays into the hands of um, you know of China, you know, if you want to call them our enemy or not, you know. But in that situation, it's not good.
0: Well, Calder makes the point here, too, that that Chinese diasporas worldwide are kind of some of the biggest victims of Chinese intelligence operations, you know, routinely kind yeah. of harassed or their families back within China are are subjected to all kinds yeah. of nasty things. And I think that's important to keep in mind, you know, yeah. I, I I've seen studies before in the past that 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 suggests that Chinese diaspora communities mm. in the US and, you know, in in the UK, too, aren't quite as nationalistic as they it's not like they see themselves as subjects of Xi Jinping's mm-hmm. communist party first mm-hmm. above all else you know that that that's not where where they are and i think it's important that we don't to your point that you know that that um a lot of these sort of you know uh uh strict stances that that we took against muslim communities after 9/11 that that played into the hands of jihadists And I think it's important now that our policies towards China don't play into the hands of the Chinese sort of trying to
1: nationalize diaspora communities abroad, you know? I think it's important. just not confident our society is in that place right now. Because I look at, like, I mean, I was just reading, I think it was this morning, about Gurkha security guards who worked in Afghanistan are now potentially going to get deported. That's terrible. And it's like, we... We we have Britain has this terrible history of not looking after people who look after us sometimes when they don't look white. Yeah. And it, it's not good. Um, you know, and obviously with uh you know, there are examples under the Trump administration where similar sort of things have sort of happened.
0: It's like the new Scottish First Minister. Yeah. You know, yeah. that that people were like, Oh no, he's, you know, brown. He's but he was born and raised in Glasgow, you know. He's just as Scottish as as I don't know anyone else born in Scotland, you know. Mm, mm. And a lot of those diaspora communities in in the UK, you know, mm. Jamaicans, British Pakistanis, and stuff they their families were encouraged to come over yes. immediately after World War II to fill these yeah. sort of labor shortages. Yeah. You know, like they came here to do y'all a favor.
1: Yeah, and I and I can tell you now, I've spoken to people, you know. Who are, shall we say, politely right wing, not necessarily uh, far right, but just right wing, who see those people as not being British. You know, my view has always been if you've got a British passport, you're British, you know. Um, And obviously, if you change your passport to Canadian, then you're Canadian, whatever. It's not a big deal. But there's something missing in Britain that somehow. something we're very there's a very monoculture way of thinking when we in reality are a multicultural society now britain obviously statistically yeah. has a huge white population versus um minority populations because we just had a census come out last year uh we'll come out this year and It was done two years ago um and it's just like we need i i don't know why it, it, now 80 years after world war ii when world war ii a lot of nations came to you know, help us all out, that we still can't find a way to be inclusive. I just don't understand why even through this wonderful period of the 90s that we look with rose-tinted glasses where nationalism didn't matter anymore and all that sort of stuff, we've not made a concerted effort in Britain to make people feel British. I just don't understand it. And I think the part of the problem, maybe, is certainly on the the left, nationalism is a sort of dirty word. Um, when we should be thinking about inclusive right. nationalism, maybe, um, and it's certainly on the right, right, you know, you've got the whole um, the the connection to the far right and just this sort of racist monoculture way of looking. But then saying that, at the moment, the conservative government, which is a um, in a sense a right wing party, probably has the most inclusive government that we've ever had in this country. So you know, it's all a bit messy on in terms of left right wing political spectrum on this matter but um something i don't know quite what the answer is but something needs to change a british society certainly if we're going to be robust enough to come up with nuanced should we say adult policies that will counter the genuine threat from chinese espionage and you know an aggressive chinese government in the future
0: well to your point there about about nationalism i think This article, Calder does a a good job at pointing out the sort of built-in kind of inherent advantages that Chinese intelligence operations have against us, whereby, you know, we, the U.S. uh, doesn't engage in, in, U.S. intelligence services don't engage in industrial espionage to the benefit of U.S. businesses, which I think is kind of surprising to most people, but they don't. Um, whereas we well, functionally, there is no, there is no daylight between the ministry of state security or the PLA and any mm, Chinese mm, company, mm. you know? I mean, yeah, kind of, they're functionally separate until the phone call comes from Beijing saying, Hey, we need you to do this thing. You know, um, um, we don't, we, we don't have that. I mean, yeah, if, if a businessman travels to, to Beijing And and the CIA, you know, gets wind that they might have seen or heard or experienced something over there that could be useful to us. The CIA has a National Resources Mm. Division, which will go and 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 Mm. and interview them, you know, but they won't. They're not that that, that's not under under penalty of of imprisonment or or their family won't be harassed if they don't cooperate. You know, we don't we don't act that way.
1: It's voluntary. It's voluntary. Right, yeah.
0: right, right. The Chinese have have gone through pains to sort of adopt this total information dominance approach to controlling their society. I mean, there's, I think... I saw a figure recently that there's 400 million surveillance cameras in mainland China. Oh,
1: wow. With facial recognition technology as well, isn't it? With
0: facial recognition tied up to these AI algorithms <laughs> that sort of go through and sort all this stuff in, in ways that you and I and most listeners yeah, yeah, can't yeah. even conceive.
1: Somebody call Orwell, quick. He's needed. <laughs> right, right. But you think also,
0: I mean, okay, if you're... If you're If you are a a Chinese spy operating in in the West, I mean, the U.S. and several Western European countries, they are multiracial, multicultural, largely affluent open societies where it's easy for someone who, who quite doesn't necessarily look like what most people look like in that country to operate, you know, whereas... China is 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 not um and they just have the manpower you know hundreds of thousands of of intelligence officers and and police officers at their disposal that makes um operating in China for western intelligence incredibly difficult i mean this article talks about how in 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 2010 um uh, the CIA's sort of spying in in Beijing was was, yes. was rolled up um I don't know to what extent uh, we've rebuilt that, but I mean, the ability to operate in China, um, incredibly difficult. And I don't, I don't know how the CIA overcomes it. Um, I'm sure they have, they have means. I mean, that's, that's something else. I think it's very easy for us to get into this kind of, woe is us? Mm. How do we possibly Mm. confront this threat? There's so Mm. much bigger Mm. and badder, yeah, they're, they're so much bigger and badder than us, which if we want to go back to sort of what we were talking before, that we're kind of in the beginning stages of, of the cold war. I mean, for a long time, um, during the cold war, you know, we had this huge inferiority complex with the Soviets, you know, we thought they were so much more powerful than us, you know, but that never really was, you know, after the cold war, when we sort of, when the veil was sort of opened, that was never really the case, you know? There was no missile gap. Um, um, a lot of those tanks you saw rolling through Red Square were yeah. were made of wood. <laughs> you know, these missiles mm. were were made of wood. Mm. They weren't real. Um I, I think it's important to while this threat is real and has to be confronted seriously with with nuance, like Calder says, um I think it's it's also it's important that we don't entirely uh uh sell ourselves short i think while the chinese intelligence services have incredible capabilities um i would venture to to say that our own intelligence capabilities are incredible and i think would 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 surprise most people with what we're able to do
1: well i would say evidence of that is ukraine um i think like the way to me from about 2010 to to up to the ukraine war I kind of f- had a feeling that the western intelligence uh on the back foot that we're all a bit behind and Russia's doing really well because obviously we had a lot of Russia had a lot of very public successes and then when the Ukraine war happened suddenly we're in a situation where we know an awful lot about what's going on in Russia we know an awful lot about Russian motivations which to me not only is signals intelligence but is human resources too that we've got defectors coming out left right and center all the time Um, and the thing is with totalitarian sort of regimes if we're going to call China that, which I think, you know, to an extent it is, there are, there's all you can't trample down human nature. Um, there are going to be petty rivalries that could be exploited. There are going to be Muslims who mm-hmm. are offended by the way China clamps down on their religion and has clamped down on Muslims. Even though Saudi Arabia and Iran and Turkey, to some extent, are doing their best to cozy up to China, ordinary day to day Muslims are going to kind of see that see through that that's political um you know and, and a lot of muslims i know still don't really sort of see eye of saudi arabia or iran anyway right. let alone um you know so i don't think iran or, or saudi arabia really speaks for muslims so there's that that can be exploited as well so i'm just thinking as a spy master now but but you know um there's all sorts of stuff and and the other thing is well one thing that i would say that was Britain and America's advantage over the Germans during World War Two was creative thinking, because again, with these sort of totalitarian regimes, you kind of push people in a very um, robotic direction, and also you end up becoming yes men just for your survival, and that's dangerous. Right. And like we've seen, you know, our, our drinking game, get ready. Oleg Gordievsky's book talks <laughs> about talks about how they, as the KGB, were instructed to write reports in a certain way that would be read favorably in the kremlin so they were basically giving a load of nonsense to the kremlin uh and painting a false picture which again putin's a victim of at the moment uh Mm -hmm. he's isolated himself and and so it's not working out well for him so i think there's an awful lot going for the west i don't think the west is a total dysfunctional disaster no i think we could always be better but one thing That i suppose makes me other than obviously being born here but makes me very pro-west is the fact that as a society yes we're imperfect and we're always in a conversation about how we could be better and i think that's a real strength yeah sometimes we forget to celebrate what we've got right and i think that's something we could do better at because there's a lot of things that we do do well and a lot but there are an awful lot of things that we could do better and i think that that's one of the strengths of the west i'll put it there
0: but see a strength of the West, too, is that you and I can have this discussion right now, yeah. and this podcast won't be wiped off the web, you know, and we won't mysteriously disappear for a couple months and then show up again, you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, singing singing the praises of 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 Xi Jinping's brilliance, you know. You and I can say, yeah, our society is kind of fucked in certain ways, and we have these challenges, but we can have an honest conversation and try to better ourselves, whereas people in these totalitarian societies cannot. No.
1: No, exactly, and that's a huge difference there. So I think, so uh-huh. I think something we should not forget, <laughs> as as uh, as it all falls apart. But anyway, yeah. So. Um So we'll segue into our final article of today. So there was a great article in The Guardian by Andrew Roth and Piotr Sauer for The Guardian. Russian defector sheds light on Putin's paranoia and his secret train network. Now, there is something about presidents and trains. Maybe we'll come back to that later. So a former security officer tells of President Putin's strict quarantine and says he has lost touch with the world. Gleb Krakolov, who served as a captain of the Federal Protection Service, the FSO, a powerful body tasked with protecting Russia's highest-ranking officials. So Karakulov was a member of a field team of the Presidential Communications Directorate that encrypts messages to, of top Russian officials and estimates he travelled on more than 180 trips. He appears to be the highest-ranking intelligence official to defect since the start of Russia's war with Ukraine. Putin has identical offices across the country that disguise his whereabouts. And he also reportedly has a secret train network because it cannot be tracked by any information resources. It's done for stealth purposes. Karakulov describes a virtual state within a state that includes firefighters, food tasters and other engineers who travel with Putin on his trips abroad, providing a rare first-hand insight into the levels of paranoia and sheltered lifestyle of the Russian president. They call him the boss, Worship him in every way, and only ever talk of him in those terms, he said. He went on to say that our president has lost touch with the world. He's been living in an information cocoon for the past couple of years, spending most of his time in his residences, which the media very fittingly call bunkers. He is pathologically afraid for his life. He surrounds himself with an impenetrable barrier of quarantines and in an information vacuum, and he only values his his own life and the lives of his family and friends. Well that bit's nice to know that he does value his family and friends but anyway. uh, And he confirmed that Putin relies heavily on information on on reports provided by his security services. Putin does not use a mobile phone or the internet and he doesn't even bring an internet specialist with him on foreign trips. He only receives information from his closest circle. So we're seeing a pattern here which means that he lives in an information vacuum. He said that Putin's behaviour and lifestyle had altered since the Outbreak of the coronavirus in 2020 when the president retreated from most travel and public appearances. While the strict quarantine regime has fueled rumors that Putin may be seriously ill, Karakulov has said that there are no indications that Putin was in poor health. So, Matt, any thoughts on any of that?
0: Well, you know, I really geek out on these articles that kind of show behind the curtain just that, like, the mechanics of, of- How this stuff works, I find that really interesting and just valuable, you know, for, for, for active measures for, for, for my books that I'm writing. Um, This is very cool to see. I want to say this guy, uh, Karakulov is, is incredibly brave. Um, I said to you offline when we were discussing the outline for the show that I really hope this guy doesn't like tea. <laughs> yeah. If you catch my drift, yeah. I mean, just cause he came from, from, from the FSO, which if, um, listeners don't know, that's the, the federal protective services, which was one of the, um, one of the, one of the chief directorates of the KGB. I don't remember off the top of my head, which one, um, that, you know, when it was, uh, split up, they were all made into separate agencies, um, but the FSO is, um, incredibly powerful. It's like, it's like the secret service, but on steroids mm. to an incredible degree. Mm. Um, I mean, they operate, uh, it talks about, um, this article talks about, uh, his, his Putin's dacha, uh, right outside to the West of Moscow, uh, Novo Ugariovo, um, and, uh, his residence in the black sea, uh, Bacharov Rushai, I believe is how you pronounce it. Um, but I mean, he basically doesn't, doesn't leave this kind of hermetically sealed cocoon that he lives in. I mean, to an extent, the the heads of most nuclear powers kind of live this way. I mean, Biden kind of lives in a hermetically sealed bubble too, but I don't think he's walled off from information that would, that would upset him. I mean, I, I know someone who works in the West Wing, so I can say that he's definitely not walled off from information that would upset him.
1: Um, Does he get upset then? But...
0: (laughs) I'm sure he gets upset. Yeah, he's 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 Irish Catholic. He definitely gets upset about things. Um, But uh, this is I mean, so the FSO kind of operates this um, entirely separate kind of world. So there's these uh, two residents that he has. Um, somewhere in this article, it talks about, uh, the, the, um, dacha that he has in the Mm Valdai national park, Mm -hmm. which I featured in part one of active measures plug. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of, there's, there's, uh, health resorts and stuff that are sort of set aside for, for, for Russian elites, this, this, uh, armored train that he, That he travels around Mm. it is very interesting to me. I don't recall hearing about this train before it was reported during the war. No. That he was moving around it. That's new to me.
1: No, it kind of makes me think of GoldenEye. But
0: anyway, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, there's, uh, yeah, th- there's something with crazed dictators and 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 armored yeah. trains that's just so retro in kind of a funky way. It is, and
1: presidents and trains, because obviously Biden and his trip to uh, to Kiev.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He took them in train. This is this is very neat. There's just a lot of cool little little anecdotes uh, that's in this article about just how he kind of lives, and it definitely kind of tracks. With a lot of the reporting on Putin's mental state mm. since in, in, in the lead up to and and after the invasion started that, you know, since COVID, he's just been so incredibly isolated. Um, I mean, there's all these continue to be all these rumors about uh, he may or may not be in various states of poor health. I don't know to what extent that's true. Um, I mean, he seems to still be chugging along just fine, unfortunately. It seems like the worst ones never
1: uh, drop dead when you want them to. A lot of UK tabloids have been obsessed about Putin's health. And, you know, mm-hmm. even even Sir Richard Dearlove, the former head of MI6, at one point was speculating about Putin's health. And there was some headline, like, Putin will drop dead in six months, and blah, blah, blah. And I've always been, I think I've said this before, I've always been very cautious about those things, because I think during... Yeah traditionally during like conflicts or whatever you know it's quite there, there's a tendency in the press to demonize the leader of the other country um or to put out nonsense i remember when 9-11 happened and there was like the news of the world put out something about bin laden was it like Taglatelli pasta? he's a fan of um was it manchester united or liverpool i can't remember which one it was and and um and then there was some derogatory thing about his health and whatever i can't remember what it was now but you know these sort of things sort of float around during times of conflict and most of the nonsense
0: this goes back a long time i mean there was during world war ii there was a lot of stories about you know hitler Mm. having having syphilis or he was missing one of his testicles or something and that was that was i mean pretty much drawn up by the oss or the or the or the uh or the uh soe um and sort of planted. In the press. So, yeah, I think it's it it seems very real that he's that Putin is is incredibly isolated and kind of surrounds himself with yes men that out of subservience or just fear only tell him the things that he wants to hear, you know, which which led to the disastrous year that his army has faced Mm. in in Ukraine. Um, Yeah, I mean, I mean nothing but respect for this uh mr gleb uh
1: karakulov um i would curious to see what the future holds for him, yeah, I know. Wouldn't it be great to try and get him on? But I don't know if that will happen because he's he's at a security risk, so it's going to be very hard to get hold of him. But we will try, yeah. We will try. I would <laughs> think
0: he's going to be in hiding for a long time, yeah. The Russians will not forget, the Russians will not forget about that.
1: No, well, this is it. The Russian intelligence services, you've got operatives all over the world. You know, we've seen okay. countless examples that they do like to kill defectors now. Um, they didn't during the cold war so much, but they certainly. Post um, Litvinenko, they don't seem to give a monkeys anymore. They seem to just be very brazen about it. So I think he needs to, you know. Um he needs to be very careful for his health there. So so there we go. But no, I think, as you were saying, I think this article confirms a lot of things that we've suspected. Um, Yeah, I think, you know, Putin went a little bit Howard Hughes during the pandemic. Um, You know, when most people were kind of trying to cope with a bit of cookery or watching Netflix, he kind of played to his inner demons and paranoia, which has culminated in this dreadful war in Ukraine. Um, And yeah, as we're saying, Putin's surrounded by yes-men, which is never a good thing um yeah and, and i suppose one thing that did pop into my head as well with all this is i can't say this pi- this picture painted of putin fills me with confidence about how he would react if he's in a kind of um no win situation and kind of cornered it does make me wonder if he's he still has the potential to go nuclear on us i mean I, people tell me that there's there are fail safes in place to kind of stop that but I don't know. Yeah. It, I, I'm not completely confident about that.
0: There is a lot of anticipation for this uh, spring offensive that the Ukrainians mm. are supposed to go uh, on shortly, and there is evidence recently that the Russians are quite concerned about their security situation in Crimea. You know, they're digging yeah. all these networks of, yeah. of trenches in the last couple of weeks or so. Yeah. Uh, so it shows that they're that they're quite nervous about what's to come soon. I mean, I, you and I have talked about this in the past that I think I think when the Russians are oh I'm sorry, when the Ukrainians are able to credibly threaten Crimea, whether that's seizing the peninsula or making life untenable there for for the people who live there, like making Crimea a frontline battlefield. Um I think that would be the I think that if that even when that happens, that'll be the beginning of the end of the war and that will bring the russians to the negotiating table in a way that's actually kind of earnest like you might get a real kind of negotiated end to the war however when when and if crimea is is threatened i think that'll be the most dangerous phase and that's when kind of the only time i would believe that putin could use some kind of tactical uh nuclear weapons on the battlefield however if that does if we do move into that space um we'll know we'll we'll know very easily um and and you'll see you'll see the white house and nato start flipping out Uh, it won't be a surprise
1: to us if 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 we move into that um space no and i think it was a point i was going to make earlier which i completely forgot to make i don't think we can rely on china to rein russia in um I, I not really and i think this is the yeah so i think because a lot of people who've sort of speculated that china might be able to do that but i'm not sure that they completely can really um i'm not sure mm, but we'll see yeah. time will tell but i mean i'm, I'm hoping it doesn't end in dr strange love 2.0 happening because uh, I, sure. I enjoyed the original i don't think i need a remake <laughs> <laughs> but there we go well matt i think we've covered as much as we possibly can there's so much more yes everybody thank you so much for listening so our plan is to do two episodes a month um so we would love to hear from you so matt and i will talk about maybe doing an ask us anything section and also if you want to suggest topics you know send in an article that you've read or um even have suggestions for people who might be interesting for us to interview drop us an email at secrets and spies podcast at gmail.com that's secrets and spies podcast at gmail.com i'll put it in the show notes as well um you can also at us on twitter by just go to secrets and spies we're also now on instagram just at us at secrets and spies on instagram we are also on facebook and that is also secrets and spies all the links to our social media is in the show notes so if you if you click on your app goes to the show notes you can get everything there as also will the uh, the articles will be there as well. If you go to secretsandspiespodcast.com you can click on every individual link and still get our show notes because I've noticed on some podcast apps sometimes it seems to cut off the show notes so uh, if you experience a a off, just go to our website and it's all there um but matt before we go are you up to anything interesting over the next few days we've got the easter break coming up i'm personally not a practicing christian i'm not a anything but uh, i do enjoy eating chocolate and hanging out with family so i don't are you up to anything exciting <laughs>
0: uh i think i'm going over my cousin's house for brunch on sunday easter's not really a big deal for us anymore either i mean it was when i was when i was smaller um but yeah it's usually it's usually pretty pretty chill um yeah i got uh this kind of big research project for a top secret thing that i'm i'm working on and taking up a bunch of my time um yeah that's pretty much it for me how about how about you and you've got some exciting things going on probably not that you want to talk about right now yeah but...
1: <laughs> well I'll, I'll mention a little bit to listeners but i won't say too much but i mean i've got a uh-huh. film project that sort of attracted the interest of a, a producer and so we're kind of just ironing out those details so once more info comes out i will publicly share more about that but uh, it's in relation to the themes of this podcast so uh, nice. uh and it's a relatively new script it's only about is uh, we've been working it for about two years now um so it's nice to finally see it's it's going somewhere um So watch this space. Keep your fingers crossed for us because obviously if this does get made, it'd be really helpful and really help get other projects off the ground because, I mean, you know, both Matt and I are both writers and we're both sort of, whilst we're not doing this and whilst we're, you know, doing our day job earning cash we're sort of both trying to write scripts and books and so on that will hopefully you know entertain you all and provide some interesting insights to the world of espionage and the people involved in it and certainly there's a few things i'm working on and trying to figure out that will hopefully uh you know, be an interesting addition to the world of, um, you know, spy fiction, I hope. That's my aspiration. Um, so, yeah, so there's some exciting things going on there. But away from all that, I think, you know, this weekend, just, um, you know, catching up with uh, my wife and some of her family and, uh, you know, having a bit of chocolate and um, maybe a bit of alcohol, too. Uh, and hopefully nice. hopefully, a nice lunch. Um, I think Easter Sunday, we're supposed to go and see some relatives for lunch. That'd be nice. And then yeah and then and then sort of keeping an eye on on the crazy world that we live in um <laughs> and trying to trying to keep one uh keep yourself sane really uh definitely be um yeah hopefully there should be a new season of bosch legacy coming out soon because it usually comes out around Easter time so. Might keep an eye out for that. I've been I finally watched the first season of Slow Horses, so I probably should try and watch season two.
0: I still gotta do that. I know there's been like several months in a row that at the end of these episodes we're like, oh yeah, slow horses. We got and I I I still haven't watched it.
1: And there's another show called The Citadel, which is supposed to be a futuristic spy show. I can't say the That's interesting. Yeah, I, I can't say the publicity stuff kind of made me think I must watch that but at the same time I do have some friends who've worked on it so I really should watch it just for that uh, mm-hmm. Um but I uh, will see because uh, I think yeah spy fiction we won't go too much to that, but spy fiction was a funny one I always find a lot of the time spy fiction is quite disappointing Yeah, um, and I think the more I learn about the world of espionage um, and, and in my mind, I see a lot of possibilities for very interesting stories. I find a lot of spy fiction, because they're, the people who write it don't necessarily have the knowledge the way it works, no. tend to go down really silly paths that just become a bit dull. Um, and, and I'm almost getting to the point because people keep enthusiastically recommending things to me because, oh, Chris, you like spy stuff. Um, and I'm getting to the point where I feel like I should revert round and say, actually, by default, I don't like spy fiction, but occasionally I do. yeah I don't know. I'm starting to get to that point, but maybe it's just because I'm getting it's... older and more cynical. I don't know. but uh... it,
0: Yeah, it's so hard. It, it's so hard for me to watch some of that stuff when you're just pointing out, yeah. like, no, that's wrong the whole time.
1: Yeah, there was even stuff in the first series of Slow Horses that I just... Found a bit disappointing. Um... But maybe we should save that for another conversation. I don't know. <laughs> right. Sure. But uh, but yeah, but, it, it, but Slow Horses, I think, is a great character drama. But is it a great spy drama? I'm not sure. Yeah. That's what I would say. I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure on that either. So I'll leave it at that. But it is very entertaining and fun. Um, and mm-hmm. it's beautifully shot. The locations in London are lovely. And I've, I think I saw them filming yeah. um, a while back. Because I've been around that area a bit um, in the last year and a bit. And uh, I think I've spotted their... their generators and stuff so
0: <laughs> they really got that nice london kind of grit mm. to it mm. you know that i miss seeing
1: um yeah like the harry palmer yeah. films almost like the because that's what i liked about the ipcris file has a nice bit of grit to it and
0: yeah like mm. the old like the like the michael kane kind of 70s mm. films and stuff you know that were that were kind of mm. set back then i mean yeah, the UK has a has a very nice. I mean, this will be weird to you because you're there all the time. But I think the UK has it has a kind of texture to it that that is
1: unique. I, I, it's hard for me to describe it more than that. Mm, mm. Well. Yeah, no, I think you're right, and it's beyond phone boxes and red uh, buses, which I I generally have a standing ban on when I'm filming now, because I I don't like seeing these things um, on TV, because it just, again, feels a bit like, ah, I've seen it so many times...
0: You don't you don't go up to the cold stream guards and make faces at them and try to like <laughs> distract their horses. Oh, only 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 like
1: once a month I Tried to cut my. They yeah. get
0: mad when you do that. No,
1: yeah, I've actually never tried it, but I don't think I ever will because they have guns yeah, and no. stuff. But uh, no, yeah. and as a forty-one-year-old man, it's probably a bit past me. Now. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> no but uh, I've only ever seen the changing of the guards. Three times. That's all because of my dad. Because my dad was really into huh. that. So, uh, the last time I saw the change of guards was twenty thirteen. So that was ten years ago. This September. So there. We- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there we go. <laughs> so that's how often I get to my Palace. Yeah. I went to the Queen's
0: birthday parade in Horse Guards in summer twenty eleven. Yeah.
1: And saw all that. Mm, mm. All that good stuff there. No, it is. It is quite. You know. It is interesting. I mean, there's me sort of uh, casting a, a shadow over it all, but or a bit of shade on it. But um, you know, it is kind of interesting to watch, uh, and, I, and I certainly understand from a tourist point of view. It's a bit of culture, isn't it? It's a bit of something different that's not necessarily yeah. going on in your country. So, you know, yeah. one shouldn't. I shouldn't completely poo poo. <laughs> It's just, I think, it's just as a, a Londoner when you see it every TV show and every movie. And when yeah. they play that same song by, is it the Clash, London calling, oh I'm God, like, yeah. I, I just groan. Um, yep. You know, so.
0: yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> but there we go. But anyway, so London's That's definitely true. not calling today. So. <laughs> <laughs> Oh Well, Matt, thank you very much. Where can listeners find out more about you, your book, uh, your writings, your musings?
0: Uh, I am on Twitter at mm-hmm. uh, Fulton Matt, F-U-L-T-O-N-M-A-T-T, yeah. where you can hear my usual rantings and ravings and, and musings. <laughs> my website is mattfulton.net, and uh, you can sort of read more about the Act of Measures series that I'm doing and other various uh, projects is
1: kind of the best place to reach me. Excellent. Excellent. Cool. Right. Well, take care. And I will catch you in a couple of weeks. Yep. And thank everybody for listening.
0: Take care. Bye.
1: Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies.